On a summer night of 1991, in the dim beam of a train's headlight, 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr.'s body lay across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by the oncoming train. In the newest season of Counterclock, my look into his death has taken me beneath the surface of the place I know as home and has plunged me into the details of a mystery so big and so bizarre that it feels like fiction, but it's not. It's reality. And the reality is exactly how Doug Wagg Jr. died and why he was found so far from where he lived has never been answered. I thought I knew all about the depths of law enforcement scandals in my home state, but this case has shown me that I couldn't have been more wrong. I've uncovered a web of small town secrets, a string of crimes, missing people, and so many other suspicious deaths that I've had to rethink everything I thought I knew about where I'm from. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Are you annoyingly inattentive? Do you watch a movie and then ask a zillion questions because you weren't paying attention? Do people ask, how do you sleep at night? Then you should get a mattress from Mattress Firm. They can help anyone sleep. Get to Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and get a king bed for a queen price. Save up to $700 and get a free adjustable base with select Sealy mattresses, all with free and fast delivery. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details. Vogue had assigned a profile of Uma Thurman in the 90s when Uma Thurman, you know, was like a hot up-and-coming young actor. She's been getting great, great reviews for her latest film called Pulp Fiction, which opens today. This is her very first time on a talk show, so I'm thrilled to have her. Please welcome Uma Thurman, ladies and gentlemen. The writer who was on staff at the magazine spent more than three hours interviewing her and got a completely epic interview there was exciting material in the interview. But the photos came back from the shoot, and Anna didn't like them. So she just killed the story. Pieces killed. 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 Dead. The writer didn't even transcribe the tape because the story was just killed, and that was that. It didn't matter what had happened in the interview. Once Anna makes a decision, she doesn't go back on it. Holy shit. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Season 2, Episode 5, The Queen. For more than 30 years, Anna Wintour has been the head decision-maker at Vogue, the world's most famous fashion magazine. Anna's ice-cold conviction has basically secured her a lifetime penthouse suite in the high-fashion high-rise in the sky. When you're working for Anna, you are working for one thing, her sign-off, 
which she writes by hand in looping script. A-W-O-K. Anna makes all the big decisions, and some of those decisions, to kill or not to kill, carry far more weight than a dashed Uma Thurman profile. I'm Amy O'Dell. I'm the author of Anna, the biography, and I write a fashion and culture newsletter at amyodell.substack.com. Amy O'Dell is the New York Times bestselling author of Anna, the biography. And it's the most delicious, deeply reported portrait of a woman practically synonymous with her industry. When I worked at Glamour, I would often see Anna coming or going from the Condé Nast offices at One World Trade. I never really got used to seeing her bobbed head, crest over the top of the escalator, or just appear between opening elevator doors. It always just felt kind of too on the nose, like walking into Planters HQ and actually seeing Mr. Peanut. And here's what makes Anna so compelling. Everything you think about her is basically true. She is terribly exacting. She can be perceived as ice cold. And yes, she really looks like that all the time. Uh, I wear Chanel sunglasses and there's way too many to count. And here's another truism about Anna Wintour. There is no correcting course once she's made a decision. Because what else is there to say? She makes decisions. She makes them fast. She makes them often. (laughs) And she says that she operates that way because it's easier for the people who work for her. Because she thinks it's frustrating, and I think this is true, that it can be frustrating to work for somebody who can't make up their mind or who makes up their mind and then changes it. What do you think would be the number one thing that you hope people learn from you and continue to learn from you? To be decisive and to be clear. And she edits by the pictures. And this is why she takes home the book every night, which is a dummy copy of Vogue. And we see drama around the book sort of caricatured in The Devil Wears Prada. And Andrea, I would like you to deliver the book to my home tonight. Have Emily give you the key. Mm -hmm. Guard this with your life. Of course. That's a real thing that she does is take home the book every night. And she's been doing it for decades since before she was editor-in-chief of American Vogue. And she's doing that so that she can look at the pictures, really, and look at the visual flow of the magazine. So that's really her primary concern is the pictures. One very much gets the sense that Anna Wintour was raised kind of like a little adult. So Anna Wintour, you know, really was exposed to journalism from a very young age because her father, Charles Wintour, was the editor of The Evening Standard. And he was widely credited with turning that paper into a very influential newspaper. We will be targeting mainly at uh, the people who make London tick, the uh, slightly more intelligent, slightly better off people, but he would not be an elitist paper. And what distinguished his approach was that he had a background in political journalism, but he also took culture really seriously. He took the visuals of the paper really seriously, and he was really interested in youth culture. There's so much going on in London at the moment. She really grew up in that kind of environment. The conversation around her dinner table was about what was in the newspapers. Famous journalists were coming to her parents' home for dinner, and she was 
in those dinners with them. This was her milieu, this glamorous, intellectual milieu that she's kind of spent her whole life in. And people I interviewed talked about how she really learned a lot about the business from her father. And you can see her editorial approach mirror his in many ways. She's very interested in youth culture. Twigs or Harry Styles, and of course, Cara Delevingne or Kendall. Young people say that she cares about what they're interested in. She asks about it. What I like about Billy Style is it's very particular to her. She's obviously channeling one person, which is herself. From a very young age, she knew that she wanted to get to Vogue, and she credited her father with giving her that idea. He said that she should work at American Vogue. She should be the editor-in-chief. And so she strove to do that. She started at Harper's and Queen in London. She came over to New York. She saw New York as the center of the world, and she wanted to move to New York. So she did. She worked at Harper's Bazaar. Then she worked at Viva, which was published by Bob Guccione, the penthouse founder. Which was a bad idea. I thought I was the smartest guy in the world as far as women were concerned. I learned as a result of that experience, as a result of working deeply with women, that I didn't begin to know them. She worked at Savvy, and then I think the job that was really, really significant for her was New York Magazine, which she started doing in the early 80s. And everywhere she went, Anna stood out. For her intelligence, yes, but also her persnickety attention to detail. I don't like that. When she was at New York Magazine, She would have been around early 30s. She was going to art shows all the time and seeing exhibits and expected people she worked with to go and see exhibits too so that they could collaborate with her and produce great shoots. Someone I interviewed who worked for Anna early in her editorship, so the late 80s and early 90s, remembered being in a meeting with Anna (laughs) and she was doing celebrity bookings and Anna was like, well, what did well at the box office this weekend? And she had no idea. And she never went to that meeting without knowing the answer to that question ever again. I think she still operates like this. Like she wants her staff to be out in the world, going to fashion parties and going to see plays and musicals. She's out like every night and she expects her staff to do that too. She was fired, or almost fired, from pretty much every job she had until she got to New York Mag. It was that attitude. She got ahead sometimes because of it and sometimes in spite of it. As she rose in the ranks, Anna Wintour continued to hopscotch between high-profile magazines. After her career catapulting turn at New York came a quick stop at the mothership. She went from there to Vogue to be creative director. Before a quick dash across the pond. She went to London to become editor-in-chief of British Vogue. That was her first editor-in-chief job. She came back to run House and Garden, which she renamed HG. And then she went from there to American Vogue in the summer of 1988. And she has been there ever since. And I I don't like this. All right, then this is still, you're still working on that? All right, this is a mess. You know, 34 years in the position that she's had is pretty extraordinary. Like Jeff Bezos left Amazon after 27 years. I think the average CEO tenure is something like five years. So this run that she has is like 
pretty incredible. And you're not going to have that kind of longevity without making some mistakes along the way. There have been some gaffes in Anna Wintour's history as an editor. Around the same time that she killed the juicy Uma profile, Anna Wintour commissioned a shoot with an up-and-coming actress named Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow was 23 years old. She got the August 1996 cover pegged to the movie Emma. And she was dating Brad Pitt at the time, which made her, like, you know, very super famous. And this is what Anna wrote. Even for Gwyneth, the road to the cover of Vogue has been bumpy. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow, we shot her three times before she got, we got the right picture out of her. But what was so funny about the Gwyneth Paltrow story, someone told me about it, and I thought I was getting a juicy, you know, unique piece of information. And then I went and I looked up the issue, and Anna wrote about it plainly in her editor's letter. And this is what she wrote. At the time of Gwyneth's first photo session, the regrettable, and she puts this phrase in quotes, trailer trash look was at its peak, and the pictures made her look like someone in the late stages of drug addiction. It's remarkable that she was able to say that in the 90s, but I think, you know, in fairness to her, you kind of have to judge it against the standards of the time, which were quite different. In 2008, LeBron James appeared on the cover of Vogue alongside supermodel Giselle Bündchen. He was the first Black man to ever do so. In the image, he's shown dribbling a basketball and baring his teeth at the camera. A lot of people thought the image was giving... King Kong. Very provocative cover, and there's a controversy. Vogue is under fire. Some bloggers have even compared this shot to the image of King Kong. But what I find interesting is that that's the photo that Vogue chose. Anna stayed the course and tuned out the critics. But in 2011, she made perhaps her most egregious mistake of all. Do you know someone struggling to figure out their mental health benefits? The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office is here to help. Find us at insurance.ohio.gov slash G-E-T-M-H-I-A or call us at 855-438-6442. Don't wait. The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office can help you figure out what mental health insurance benefits may be in their plan. Call us today at 855-438-6442. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. As an editor, Anna Wintour values a good mix. She wants the magazine to flow visually and then really slow down around the well, that adless belly of the book where the longer, textier stories live. And like her newspaperman father, she doesn't shy away from high-minded subject matter and she has, I think, always wanted to put political stories in vogue. She's always believed that that was important, whether or not it was being read. 
So in 2011, Vogue ran what is probably one of its most controversial stories in, in all of its history. And that was a profile of the Syrian first lady, Asma al-Assad, written by Joan Juliet Buck, who had been a close friend of Anna's since they were young and coming up together in London. Anna and Joan Juliet went way back, all the way back to Anna's assistant days at Harper's and Queen. Joan had been a contributing editor at Vogue for almost 10 years. At first, she says, she resisted writing a profile on Syrian First Lady Asma al-Assad. She was no expert on Middle East politics. No, no, the magazine assured her. That's why she was perfect for the piece. As the story went from the reporting stage to the fact-checking stage to getting published, a process that takes months, the situation in Syria had gone from bad to worse. So much worse. Here's a quick timeline rundown. December 10th, 2010, Joan Juliet Buck arrives in Damascus. December 14th, Joan Juliet Buck's first interview with Asma al-Assad. December 17th, the Arab Spring begins in Tunisia when a 26-year-old fruit vendor sets himself on fire. In the country of Tunisia, people took to the streets, rose up, and forced out one of the toughest dictators on earth. Protesters return en masse to Tahrir Square and Cairo. Anger and frustration spilling onto the streets of Beirut. They're saying the people demand the overthrow of the regime. Syria quickly joins the ranks of countries opposing its autocratic leaders, in this case, the Assad family, which had kept itself in power by any means necessary for four decades. February 25th, Buck's profile on Asma al-Assad goes live on Vogue.com. And it said that um, Assad was democratically elected with 99% of the vote or something like that. You, you know, a, a pretty egregious, egregiously tone-deaf piece. It starts. Asma al-Assad is glamorous, young, and very chic. The freshest and most magnetic of first ladies. Her style is not the couture and bling dazzle of Middle Eastern power, but a deliberate lack of adornment. She's a rare combination— a thin, long-limbed beauty with a trained, analytic mind who dresses with cunning understatement. Paris Match calls her the element of light in a country full of shadow zones. She is the first lady of Syria. Syria is known as the safest country in the Middle East. This was the Assad regime known for committing human rights atrocities, which were not mentioned in the story. It was a puff piece. And Anna's team told her not to run the story. They knew that it was going to be received basically the way that it was, which was with enormous and warranted backlash. And the reason Anna ran the story is because she liked the picture. She liked the picture of Asma al-Assad standing on a vista overlooking Damascus with a magenta wrap around her shoulders. 
And Anna just wanted that, that photo in the magazine. This was an instance where her decisiveness worked against her. She made a decision. She didn't go back on it. It was a bad look for Vogue. And it was a bad look for the writer, Joan Juliet Buck. In the weeks after Joan Juliet Buck's profile on Ozma al-Assad was published, Vogue and its editor-in-chief, Anna Wintour, came under fire. The Washington Post's Paul Farhi wrote, It may have been the worst-timed and most tin-eared magazine article in decades. The Atlantic's Max Fisher crucified the piece's tone, saying it tried to make the couple out as fun, glamorous, American-style celebrities. I could not possibly forget this profile if I wanted to. That's Max, who was a writer covering international issues at The Atlantic then, and is now a reporter and news columnist at The New York Times. I lived in Washington, D.C. at this point in the foreign policy world, and people were just agog. They could not believe that Vogue magazine, that you know, one of the world's biggest magazines, had actually run an, an earnest, honest-to-God puff profile of the first lady of Syria. It came out in the middle of the Arab Spring, literally in a week in which Asma al-Assad's husband, Bashar al-Assad, the lifelong dictator of Syria, was sending tanks and artillery into Syrian neighborhoods. First tanks shelled the neighborhood. Just then about one of the most horrifying crackdowns of the last... I don't know, 40 or 50 years. This was intimate killing. This just landed onto newsstands with no apology, no explanation, just here it is, here's Asma al-Assad, and look at how beautiful she is. Days after the article appeared on newsstands, Max interviewed Buck's editor at Vogue, Chris Knutson. I really got the sense when I started the conversation with him that he did not really understand what the reaction was or why people were so upset about it. And it was kind of only over the course of the conversation that he seemed to realize like, oh, this is actually, this is actually pretty bad. He seemed to think that the outrage was just like, oh, the Syrian government is not people's favorite government in the world. So there's some discomfort with the idea of profiling them. And it seemed completely unaware that the basic premise of the piece, which is that the Assads are open-minded liberals was was just completely false. I mean, it was just top to bottom, a giant flashing red lie that the magazine allowed the Assads to tell their 12 million readers. He seemed to be just unaware of what was happening in Syria at that moment and what had been happening in Syria over the year and a half before them. And his kind of defense was like, oh, well, the Arab Spring just happened. So how could we have possibly known? And it was coincidence of timing. But if they had... At any one point, so much as Googled the word Syria or the word Assad, they would have immediately gotten, you know, just pages and pages of news stories about sponsoring international terrorism, about the government torturing and murdering political dissidents, about its ferrying of insurgents into Iraq to kill American soldiers. Uh, I mean, this was this is not a government that suddenly became bad overnight as they were going to press. It had always been like this. Something that I thought the piece did that was especially weird and frankly still gives me kind of the willies 10 years later is it over and over and over implies that the Assads are Christian and that they're white. 
And in fact, they're, you know, of course, ethnically Arab and religiously Muslim. The story makes note of the family's Christmas tree, the children's Montessori school, and the fact that Bashar al-Assad has blue eyes. And the, the way that the piece seemed to make this willful effort to say our readers will like the Assads more if we make them white Christians and mislead our readers into thinking they're white Christians is just, it's a weird project. It's a weird thing to do with your magazine. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. A few months after The Atlantic's Max Fisher interviewed Vogue editor Chris Knudsen, the article and all references to it were quietly removed from Vogue's website without explanation. In a glowing profile, Vogue magazine called her a rose in the desert, then abruptly pulled the piece off the web. These are the contradictions of Asma al-Assad, married for about a dozen... The Hill would go on to report that public relations firm Brown Lloyd James had been paid $5,000 a month by the Syrian government to manage U.S. press efforts like the Vogue article. More than a year after the piece's publication, Anna Wintour would issue a statement deploring the, quote, actions of the Assad regime in the strongest possible terms. After the New York Times story and Anna Wintour's condemnation of the Assad regime, Buck finally spoke up. In a piece for Newsweek titled, My Vogue Interview with Syria's First Lady, the writer, who had stayed quiet for over a year and whose contract wasn't renewed after all this, tells her side of the story. Of her editors, she writes, they didn't think the Arab Spring was going anywhere. And the piece was needed for the March power issue. She also wrote of the, quote, toxic aura she observed while in Damascus of how she came home to her hotel room one night and found her Ethernet cord violently ripped from her computer. Of a roving metal prison she saw and then was told she absolutely did not see. She said she was gaslit by her handlers, her editors, and the subject herself. Here she is getting absolutely grilled on CNN. Were you duped? Do you feel like a fool? I feel like a fool vis-a-vis Asma Assad. I fell for the line this woman fed me. So she took a lot of heat for it, Joan Juliet Buck. She writes about how she wasn't a Middle East expert or anything like that, and yet she was assigned this story and agreed to do it with some reluctance, you know, but did it anyway. Then after this all happened, you know, and she had to endure the Internet's wrath in a very intense way, she and Anna never talked again. Anna never called her. Well, it is certainly true that one of the world's cruelest authoritarian regimes misled a Western reporter. And it is certainly true that her editors really failed her. It's tough for me to feel too sympathetic. It's not as if Joan Juliet Buck had to invent in real time in the year 2011 how to do reporting on an authoritarian government. It's, it's, it's something that is 
pretty well known and pretty well established. And there are a couple of basics like you call an expert and you say, hey, this authoritarian government told me all of these things. What do you think? Is that true? You talk to people who live under that government. You make, make some effort to do some basic research. So many profound journalistic sins in this. I just, I, I, I just, I mean, still, I'm still just reeling over it. And of course, Joan Juliet Buck really paid for this. I mean, in, I think in a lot of ways it killed her career. Holy shit. Joan Juliet Buck went on to have a varied career. She's written for Tea, the New York Times-style magazine, and Harper's Bazaar. She's also a bit of a thespian. In response to a request for interview, she told Killed, I'd have to think about that at some length. She did not respond to follow-ups. Chris Knutson declined to comment for this episode. Some people will say Anna's very loyal. There's very, very few people that she's so loyal to. And it's kind of my impression that, like, this is why people don't feel safe around her. Because she can make these decisions. I think this is why she's such a successful executive, because these decisions are not personal to her. I think it's worth noting that the story came to be somewhat valued after time had passed. Yes, the tone was wrong. I'm not defend. I don't want to sound like I'm defending that. But people did go on to point out that, you know, Vogue got time with the Assad's. And that's not, that's not a normal thing for an American journalist. These days, Anna Wintour is the chief content officer and global editorial director of Vogue, which means she's in charge of high-level editorial decisions for not only Vogue, but all of the publisher's magazines worldwide. That is a fuck ton of decisions to make. Representatives for Vogue did not respond to Kild's requests for comment. So many people speculated that she must be so unhappy with the way she has to work now, with the standards being different and, you know, not having so much time and so much money to create the fantasies that Vogue is known for. But people also told me, and it became very clear to me, that she is hungry. She's still hungry. She's 73, but she wakes up hungry and ready to work. I never got the impression she's sitting there regretting the things that she's done. If she regrets anything, she doesn't talk about it. She always talks about moving forward, moving forward. She doesn't like to dwell on the past. Like one thing that I report in the book is that she didn't, she didn't want to do throwback Thursday (laughs) because she doesn't see the value in looking back. She just wants to move forward. And she likes the job. Next time on Killed. Having sympathy for Phil Spector is not something that a lot of magazines wanted to take a gamble on. There was a lot of, like, fuck you energy going through me where it was like, you wanted my dad to suffer, you know, well, he did. Killed is an Audio Chuck production. 
created and written by Justine Harmon and edited by Alistair Sherman. You can find links to all the published stories featured on the first and second seasons of Killed at killedstories.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?